the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Southern California Live on a Thursday afternoon, the St. Patrick's Day edition of the program. Thanks for tuning in. It's 4 o'clock on Southern California Live. I'm Bob Lapine. Uh, This is the time of year when um, you're likely to hear the name Bart Ehrman. If you're reading um, mainstream media, magazines, whatever it is, uh, Bart's name starts popping up in stories leading up to Easter during the Lenten season because uh, for the secular media, he is their go-to guy to uh, to, to try to uh, to explain away or dismiss or to to bring into the modern era religious thought. Dr. Ehrman is a he's a scholar. He is a professor of he's actually the uh, the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. His path to that position is an interesting one. He grew up in Lawrence, Kansas. He uh, grew up in a family that was Anglican. They went to the Episcopal Church sometime during his teenage years. He had a what what appeared to everyone to be a, a conversion, a road to Damascus experience. He was again appear. He appeared to be born again. Wound up going to the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago where he studied the Bible, biblical theology, transferred to Wheaton College, graduated from Wheaton with a bachelor's degree, went on to get his MDiv and his PhD at Princeton Theological Seminary, and it was there at Princeton where he began to question what he had believed. In fact, that questioning, this, this all related to textual criticism, looking and going, is is the gospel record accurate? Is this true? Are, are these reliable documents? Um, and and ultimately he came to the conclusion that there are sufficient contradictions and discrepancies in the biblical manuscripts that cannot be harmonized or reconciled. He uh, abandoned it. Actually, he he left evangelicalism, went back to the Episcopal Church. He remained a mainline Protestant Christian for about 15 years until he said, actually, he was an agnostic. He he refers to himself as an agnostic atheist. An agnostic is somebody who says, I can't be sure. An atheist is somebody who says there is no God. So he's basically saying, I'm I'm pretty sure there's no God, but I can't say that definitely. I, I bring him up because a week from tonight, at the St. Therese of Carmel Catholic Church in San Diego. He is going to be in town for a debate, what ought to be a lively event, debating the question of, are the Gospels historically reliable? You can attend this event 
Tickets are available. I think it's 15 bucks to get tickets if you'd like to go. And he will be debating Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy is a, a well-known author and speaker, a senior apologist for the organization Catholic Answers. For more than 25 years, he has been defending the faith. Jimmy, interestingly, converted to Catholicism from his background in Protestantism, which is something we will likely get into in this hour. Jimmy is joining us to talk about what's coming up a week from now and talk about the conversation he expects to be having next Thursday night with uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Jimmy, thanks for joining us on Southern California Live. Hey, it's my pleasure. Happy to be with you. Well, yeah, I'm very interested. I, I saw this. I forget where I got the email or the information about this debate happening, but I thought this should be a fun event, especially when I saw Bart Ehrman is going to be debating somebody who's got a ZZ Top beard and cowboy hat. <laughs> well, I which am is... from Texas. <laughs> so so uh, Bart's a pretty imposing intimidating theological figure. He's a scholar. He's written widely on this. Not, I, I'm not d- diminishing in any way your background or your credentials, but you, you are stepping into the debate ring with somebody who's, who's done this a number of times and knows his way around the ring, right? Well, sure, but uh, to put it in a kind of Texas way, this isn't my first rodeo either. So I've done a, I've done a lot of debates, and uh, it's something that I enjoy doing, especially when um, it'll be a even though it'll be an intense dialogue, we're not going to be just hurling insults at each other. So right. it'll be a respectful dialogue, and uh, and that's the kind of debate that I enjoy, where you have a, a true testing of views, but it's conducted in a cordial manner. Have you gone head-to-head with him before? No, this is going to be a first time. So uh, as you look at this and as you look at his journey to where to where he came to and, and you're starting to prepare for what the back and forth is going to look like, again, the subject, is this a formal debate? Is there a, a thesis? Yes. And so, so what is the stated thesis? The stated thesis is resolved. The four Gospels are historically unreliable. And that way, uh, he gets to go first. He, he has the burden of proof. He, it's, the burden is on him to show that they're historically unreliable. And I thought that was uh, a fair way to approach it, because so often Christians are, are, have it the other way around. Uh, skeptics will come to us and try to make it sound like the burden is on us to prove that they are reliable, and I think it's healthy once in a while to have the roles reversed and to have the skeptics defend their view that they're mm. not reliable. And and you've read enough of his—I mean, he's written so many books on this subject. Uh, what do you think will be the essence—what are his main arguments uh, attacking the reliability of the Gospels? Basically, um, and it varies a little bit. Now, I, of course, in prep for this, I've not only reviewed— you know his books, which I've I've read and known about for years. Also, lectures that he's given, prior debates he's done, and when he argues this, he tends to want to say, "Well, look, um, I, I, what I want to know in looking at the Gospels is, do they tell us what really happened?" And he'll then look at the Gospels and he'll invite the audience to look at the Gospels for themselves and say, "Okay, look at look at them in parallel, like get a harmony." 
or a synopsis of the Gospels, where you can look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in parallel columns and, you know, take an account from one of them and then read and make a list of all the stuff that happens in it and then do the same for all of the parallel accounts and see what's different about the lists. Because if uh, you have different details or different information in one than another, then there's an issue that has to be resolved. And he'll acknowledge, at least on a good day, he'll acknowledge that a lot of that can be reasonably resolved. You know, just because Matthew mentions Jesus healing two blind men and Mark only mentions Jesus healing one blind man, that's not a contradiction. That's just not including all the same information. But Bart will then say that there are other passages where you can't simply resolve them. And that, in his view, makes them historically unreliable. So that's the essence of his argument. Jimmy Aiken joining us this afternoon. We're talking about an upcoming debate. It's going to happen a week from tonight in San Diego. He'll be debating Bart Ehrman on the reliability of the Gospels. And, you know, we've heard for years from those who who um, who push back on the Christian faith that there are contradictions throughout the Bible. Most of the people who make assertions like that, if you ask them, will name one, they're just parroting something that they've heard other people say. In Bart's case, he's really tripped up by what he sees as legitimate contradictions in the gospel accounts, right? Yeah, uh, he's convinced that there are passages that can't reasonably be resolved, and to his mind, that shows that the Gospels are not historically reliable. Um, you know, I have responses to all that, but that's the essence of his argument. And and as you engage with him, you've heard other people engage with him. Does anybody ever make any headway? Does he ever go, well, that's a good point, or is he just has he become inflexible in his views? Well, um, I've seen him acknowledge when uh, when other uh, d- debate partners have have made good points. Uh, I've seen him acknowledge it when they make good jokes, and sometimes you know, kind of make a dig that act, that lands a little close to home. And 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 so he doesn't come across as unreasonable in that way. Uh, I think he is settled in his opinions that the uh, that the gospels. Um, are, are, are unreliable, and I don't expect to change his mind on that. But for someone who is wanting to see the issue tested, uh, I think that there are very good answers to the uh, to the the claims that he makes, and I look forward to exploring those. And and with that in mind, uh, the goal for a night like this, as as you head into it, as you prayerfully head into a dialogue like this, what are you hoping will be a God-honoring outcome for your time? I want to uh, achieve a couple of things. Um, The first one is I want to show people that there is a credible case for the Christian faith and its and its trust in the reliability of the Gospels. Um, I want Christians who might otherwise have doubts about that to see that. I want Christians who don't have doubts about it to see here's a way that you can defend it when people make these claims to you. And then for people who are on the other side, who, who aren't convinced of the reliability of the Gospels or who even oppose it, like Bart Ehrman does, I'd like to see them see that there is a credible case that can be made for the Gospels being uh, reliable historical sources, even if you're not a person of faith. There's still 
reason to trust the Gospels in their fundamental historical integrity. Whether you're a Christian or not, these are historical documents, and compared to other works of ancient history, they're very good, even by purely secular standards. Jimmy, talk about the the role of apologetics and the kind of engagement you're going to be having in terms of our Christian witness, because there are a lot of people who have looked at apologetics in our day and said this kind of purely rational defense of the faith um, is is uh, the old way of doing things. We need to we need to be approaching things on a different level, and people aren't going to be convinced by apologetics. What role does apologetics play in in our presentation of the gospel to others? Well, I think that um, that there are multiple approaches that are needed. In fact, um, my own view of apologetics, there are different ways it can be practiced. And uh, your audience may be aware of schools like classical apologetics and presuppositionalism and evidential apologetics, and those are all different approaches. The approach that I take is what I call toolbox apologetics. And just like a uh, just like a, an electrician or a carpenter has a box of tools that he reaches into to pull out something that will address a particular issue, that's how I think apologists need to work. They need to be like master carpenters who have a box of tools that they can use to help people. So whatever a person's particular issue is, whether it's intellectual or emotional or familial or social or whatever it may be, my job as an apologist is to remove barriers between a person and Jesus Christ. And I want to use whatever tool will address that person's particular need. To give an example, um, you know, like in classical apologetics, you start first by proving the existence of God and then proving that Jesus is the Messiah and that he rose from the dead and so forth. But that's not what everybody needs to hear at a single moment in their life. Years ago, when the Internet first became commercially available, I got an email from a woman in Southeast Asia. She was from a Muslim country. And she had gone to college in the United States and then gone back home. And she had seen what Christian culture was like, and it was starting to make her wonder whether Christianity could be true. But what she was interested in was not, did Jesus rise from the dead, or is he the Messiah? What she asked me in that very first email was, what is the Christian view of women? because she had grown up with the Muslim view of women, Mm -hmm. and she had seen that Christians treated women differently and better, and she wanted to know more about that. And so my job as an apologist was to help explain that to her, not to ram some pre-programmed set of apologetic arguments down her throat, but to genuinely serve her need where she was at that moment. And so I think that there can be a problem with some apologists not really listening to people and where they're at and not really responding to what they need at the moment. But apologetics done well will do exactly that. And we actually see apologetics uh, in the Bible, the both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are apologetic arguments that are used to win people to God and to Christ, and we're even told that we need to be ready to defend our faith. So there is a role for apologetics, but it needs to be done right, and in a way that it's sensitive to the individual needs and concerns of people, rather than just reading a, a set of pre-existing talking points at them. The Apostle Paul was using an apologetic approach on Mars Hill, wasn't he? 
Indeed, absolutely. He yeah. even quotes from uh, Greek authors to make his points, since he knows that they'll get a broader respect from the Greek inhabitants of Athens than simply quoting Hebrew scriptures at them. Jimmy Akins joining us this afternoon. He will be engaged um, next week in a debate with Bart Ehrman in San Diego. And again, I'll just mention this to you if you're interested in attending live. It's going to be at St. Therese uh, of Carmel Catholic Church in in San Diego. This is also going to be, is this being broadcast nationwide on, on, um, on, on XM, yes. on satellite radio? Well, on satellite radio, I don't know, but it is going to be streamed live on the internet. And you can get more, it'll be, for example, at our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash catholiccom. Um, or just go on YouTube and look up Catholic Answers. Also, if you want to get tickets, you can go to catholic.com slash debate. And so that's catholic.com slash debate, and you'll get information about where it is and how to get tickets and all that kind of stuff. I want to talk to you about your own journey from Protestantism to Catholicism, but before we dive into that, um, for those who might be listening who go, you know, I've had my own questions about the reliability of the Gospels. I've read things where I go, can this really be true? Uh, or how do I reconcile things that I read in one gospel and it seems different from another gospel? What does a believer do when they face those kinds of challenges? Uh, how do they process that? Well, um, one way is by studying the kind of literature that the gospels are, because people don't write in that in that way today. It's not a modern form of literature. In fact, when I first read the gospels, when I was 20 years old, um, it was very alien and foreign to me. So they're obviously not literature as we write it today, and so to understand how it works, you need to do a little bit of study. And there are lots of resources on that. There's all kinds of books about how to read the Bible. There are even books uh, specifically devoted to how to uh, resolve apparent discrepancies. Um, you know, there's Gleason Archer's uh, Encyclopedia of Bible, or Handbook of Bible Difficulties. There's the Hard Sayings of the Bible series with people like F.F. F. Bruce and uh, Walter Kaiser. So there are books that are available that will help you resolve these things. If you really want to go on a deep dive, you can always get uh, scholarly commentaries, because that's one of the things that scholarly commentaries talk about, is how to resolve these, uh, you know, how to fit together what's said in various different documents. But most of the time, it doesn't go that far. Most of the time, there are a few basic principles that will resolve 90-plus percent of the questions that people have. One of them is that, uh, that the biblical authors, because they were living in a world before tape recorders, they paraphrase. They will say, well, here's what Jesus said, or here's what one of the apostles said, but they won't use the exact words, and they're not claiming to use the exact words. I mean, to give a, a modern example, let's suppose your coworker comes to you and said, the boss says we can go home now. Okay, well, what actually may have happened, they may be accurately reporting what the boss said, but not in those exact words. The boss might have said something like, okay, we finished our work for today, I'll see you tomorrow. That's not exactly the same words as, we can go home now. But it communicates the same message. And so when you realize that we use paraphrase, we say the same thing, but in slightly different words, um, we do that today as part of ordinary speech, and the biblical authors did that too. So all of a sudden, once you realize that, 
all of these supposed contradictions vanish because, oh, well, Matthew uses this word here, and Mark uses this slightly different word over here, but they mean the same thing. They're communicating the same fundamental message. The ancient authors, like we today, don't claim to be giving exact word-for-word quotations on every occasion. What they're claiming to do is give you the meaning of what Jesus said and did. So would you say that the Sermon on the Mount is a paraphrase of what Jesus actually said? I think the Sermon on the Mount is a collection of different uh, teachings that Jesus gave of a moral nature, and it it undoubtedly includes some elements of of, uh, adaptation or paraphrase, but it still gives us the genuine meaning of Jesus' moral teachings. And one of the reasons I say it's a collection is because that's if you study Matthew in comparison to the other Gospels, you see Matthew doing this. Matthew likes to collect things that Jesus said on different occasions and organize them by topic. He puts all the stuff on the same topic together. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he collects the different ethical, moral teachings of Jesus that you see scattered in different places in Luke. You know, they're, they're, he'll say, he'll give one teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, Luke will, in one place, and another one in another place, but Matthew wants to put all of the ethical teachings together. So he scoops them all up and organizes them in the Sermon on the Mount. He does the same kind of thing with the parables of Jesus in the Kingdom Discourse in Matthew 13. Mm-hmm. And then he does, uh, he does the same thing in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' prophetic discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. If you look at Luke, you'll see that the core of the Olivet Discourse is there in Luke 21, but then Luke has other prophetic sayings of Jesus elsewhere, and Matthew scoops them up and puts them all together as the in his version of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. So Matthew's just an organizer. He likes to keep things on the same topic together. Well, anybody who's ever read more than one newspaper account of a, a historical event in our day certainly recognizes that the same event can be reported from different perspectives and different angles, and, and yet both can be simultaneously true, even if they don't exactly overlap. Jimmy Aikens joining us this afternoon, a debate coming up a week from tonight in San Diego with Bart Ehrman on the reliability of the Gospels. There's more information available uh, about that debate online. When we come back, though, uh, Jimmy, I, w- I want to talk about your own journey and how you got to where you are and 25 years of uh, your apologetic work with Catholic Answers. Uh, and we'll take calls if you'd like to join us at 888-52-TALKS as the Thursday edition of Southern California Live continues. Southern California Live, Thursday afternoon, St. Patrick's Day. Welcome to the St. Patrick's Day edition. We're talking to Jimmy Aiken, who is a well-known senior apologist for Catholic Answers. He's going to be speaking a week from tonight in a debate with Bart Ehrman on the subject of the reliability of the Gospels. And and Jimmy, I, I'm curious about your path to where you are. Um, okay. And, and and your own spiritual journey. So take us on that journey. Who well, um, so I was uh, I was very young. I was raised in the Church of Christ, 
which is a, a very conservative Protestant denomination. It doesn't always like to be called a denomination, but it's a, a very conservative Protestant group. Uh, many members of it would identify themselves as fundamentalists. And so I, I had a very early um, fundamentalist upbringing. But then, um, and I don't use that term lightly, it's because people in the movement at the time would say, yeah, I'm a fundamentalist. Um, then, uh, I, my parents kind of drifted away from that, and I was raised nominally Protestant. When I was in my teenage years, I had a flirtation with the New Age movement. But then when I was 20, I had a really profound conversion to Christ, and I became a very, very serious evangelical. And I read through the Bible, and I, I realized I wanted to devote my life to the service of God's Word. And in, in context, um, I wanted of, of the time, I wanted to be a Protestant seminary professor and or pastor. And so I was uh, studying uh, towards that goal. And as I read through the Bible for that first time, I noticed certain things in it that didn't sound evangelical. I noticed certain things that sounded kind of Catholic, like, um, you know, on this rock I will build my church, and whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven, and the bread we eat, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so I noticed these things, but I said, you know, I'm a baby Christian right now, and I, I shouldn't try to make an assessment of what these mean. I'll put them on the shelf, and I'll come back to them when I know more. And when I went back a few years later, I concluded Jesus meant what he said in these passages, and that the Catholic understanding of them was right. And that meant that I had to go through all of the different categories of systematic theology with an open mind to whether the Catholic understanding of these matters might be right. And when I did that, I concluded it was right. And so I became convinced that the Bible teaches the Catholic faith, and so I needed to become a Catholic. And that's the overall story, but if people want the details, uh, I've written it up. It's called A Triumph and a Tragedy, uh, because it occurred at the same time my uh, my wife was uh, dying of cancer. Mm. I, um, I actually was received into the Catholic Church in her hospital room using the emergency shortened form of the rites of initiation. And people can read that at my website, jimmyaken.com. Uh, that's J-I-M-M-Y. And my last name is so easy, just four letters. A-K-I-N. Just like it sounds. A-K-I-N. So jimmyaken.com, and you can read all about it there if you'd like the details. So as as you're not surprised that you and I would be on different sides of the Tiber as, as we uh, look at how we understand this. I remember listening, this was maybe I don't know, 20 plus years ago, I, I listened to an extended debate between two Protestant scholars, two Catholic scholars, and really uh -huh. as, as as they talked about the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism, they said we, we could get off on all kinds of uh, tangents related to our our views on purgatory, our views on uh, Mary, any number of issues, but they said it really comes down in their view at least for the terms of that debate, is what is our source of authority? Is it mm -hmm. sola scriptura, or is it uh, scripture and tradition? And how is a man made right with God? Um, would you say Catholics and Protestants still view those two issues differently? 
Well, it depends on on who you're talking about. Um, in the Protestant world, as you know, there's a, a lot of theological diversity, including on things like what does sola scriptura and sola fide mean. You know, they're they they're very common. You know, they're rallying points in the Protestant community, but they get interpreted in very different ways. Um, and so it's really going to depend on who you're talking about. But on the question of how we're made right with God, on the question of justification, there's a lot more agreement than is commonly realized. Um, and this is something that having, um, having been in both camps I had, and having moved from one to the other, I had to learn how to translate the theological language that Protestants use in talking about salvation into Catholic language. And so I serve as kind of an interpreter uh, between the two groups. And I actually wrote a book called The Drama of Salvation, where I talk about this in a lot of depth. But to illustrate the degree of commonality uh, that exists today when you clear away some of the, like, terminological differences, because, you know, St. Paul said, don't fight about words. It only ruins the hearers. Um, when you do that on the subject of justification, you find there's actually, there is or can be a lot of agreement. And so uh, 22 years ago, 23 years ago, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation signed a joint declaration on the doctrine of justification, in which they said that we are in substantial agreement here. When you clear away the difference of emphases and the different ways we use language, we're actually in agreement on the substance of the doctrine of justification, and we don't need to be divided by this. And subsequently, the World Methodist Council uh, also signed the document, and more recently, the World Council of Reformed Churches has also signed the document. So depending on which groups of Protestants you're talking about, there can actually be a lot of agreement on justification. So when it comes to the issue of authority, there's not as much, because you uh, there there is some, uh, and there are some Protestant traditions that see a more, um, a more robust role for tradition, but... Um, there are still many Protestants who will say, no, it's just the Bible, that's the only thing that's authoritative, and so I need to form my beliefs sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And I understand that viewpoint, it's one I used to share, but it's not actually the method that the apostles used. It's not the method that people in the Old Testament period used, and it's not the method that was used in the Church until after the invention of the printing press, which was a key development that allowed Sola Scriptura to be thinkable. So because it wasn't the pattern of authority or the system of authority that the apostles recognized or that the early Church used, it wasn't something that was used in the Church for the first 1,500 years, I had to conclude I need to stick with the, with the view of authority that the apostles used, which was Scripture and apostolic tradition as interpreted by the teaching authority of the church, like the Council of Jerusalem. So let me go back to justification. We'll start there. Sure. I I just want to make sure, as one who tries to accurately represent 
uh, where my Catholic friends would be on this. I just want to make sure I'm I'm understanding it correctly. I have understood for years that uh, that Rome teaches that justification is the end of the the chain of salvation. That after we are fully sanctified, it is at that point that we are justified. And to refer to justification prior to complete sanctification, uh, Rome would call that a legal fiction. Uh, Protestants, on the other hand, see our justification as forensic, uh, declared by Jesus justified, and then the process of sanctification beginning. That seems to me to be a pretty significant differentiation. Do I have that wrong? Well, it would be a significant difference, but I'm happy to announce, yeah, you got it wrong. Um, the uh, What the uh, Church understands is that justification is something that occurs to us at the beginning of the Christian life. It does involve a remission of sins, so God forgives our sins. There's the, there's the forensic uh, justification, if you want to use that term, which is a courtroom term, but God does, at the beginning of our, our Christian lives, remove the guilt of all of our sins, so we're completely forgiven, and he also renews our inner man. You know, St. Paul talks about us being a new creation in Christ. And so that's our initial justification, and you are completely justified. If you died at that moment, you would go to heaven. So justification is something that's already happened to us as Christians from that, in that perspective, but also we learn from Scripture that we grow in righteousness over the course of the Christian life as we cooperate with God's grace. Like St. Paul says, we were created in Christ for good works. They, good works do not get you into a state of justification. They flow from God's grace within the state of justification. And then over the course of time, and by the time we stand before Jesus in heaven, he will have made us perfectly righteous, because there won't be any sinning in heaven. So justification is done to us at the beginning of the Christian life, but then we grow in righteousness over the course of the Christian life, and ultimately by his grace, God will complete our justification in heaven. As St. Paul says, we look forward to the hope of justification or the hope of righteousness to translate the same Greek word in two different ways. So can I expect that to happen for you and me after a period of of purging that follows death or not? Well, to the extent we need to be purged, sure. But then uh, most Protestants agree with with that. I mean, a lot of Protestants will say, yeah, I don't expect to be perfect on my deathbed, but I am going to be perfect when I'm with Jesus in heaven. And so between, from that it's obvious, between death and glorification in heaven, I need to get cleaned up. I need to be, I need to be made perfect. And that purification is what Catholics refer to as purgatory. And the Church doesn't teach that it takes time or that it has any—we don't really know how it happens. We just know that it does, because we know if we're still sinners at the end of this life, we won't be when we're with Jesus. So obviously we're transformed, even if it's just in the twinkling of an eye like John refers to. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so in fact, Pope Benedict XVI, when he wrote about purgatory, he said it can't be measured in earthly time. And so we have to leave exactly how this purification works to God, but we know that it does happen, and thank God it will, yes. because <laughs> I wouldn't want to go through all eternity sub- still subject to temptation and sin. I want well, that perfection. 
I can amen that with you. Uh, Jimmy Aiken joining us this afternoon. We're talking about an upcoming debate a week from tonight in San Diego. We're also talking about differences between Protestantism and Catholicism. Uh, I, I just want to say, as we talk about this, I'm glad to have you going up against Barton next week and that we can be co-belligerents on the reliability of the gospel, even if we have things that uh, we don't agree with on this side of uh, of uh, our understanding of, of the Bible and the gospel. We're going to take a quick time out, continue the conversation with Jimmy as your Thursday edition of Southern California Live continues. Southern California Live, Thursday afternoon, St. Patrick's Day. I'm Bob Lapine. We're talking to Jimmy Aiken, who is a senior apologist for Catholic Answers, who a week from tonight, Aiken versus Airman, the uh, debate taking place in San Diego, streamed live on YouTube uh, next Thursday night at 7 o'clock. If you're in San Diego and want to check it out, tickets are available. If you want to watch it on YouTube, you can do that next uh Tuesday or next Thursday night at seven o'clock. I should say Happy St. Patrick's Day to you, Jimmy. I didn't. I, I uh, omitted that. Uh, uh, so l- let me just uh, offer that as a as a greeting here. Thank you, and uh, likewise, and uh, Dihuit, which is Irish for God be with you, and also with you. Uh, let, let me go back to we we were talking about source of authority. One of the two things that. Uh, that I said as I listened to a debate years ago between Catholics and Protestants, the question of what is your ultimate source of authority was was one of the issues on the table. Um, and and I have I am one who has great I, I've benefited from and value uh, the teaching and the uh, the help that I've received from the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the the Church Councils. Uh, there's no doubt that God has used. Uh, these councils and these creeds as a way to help us gain clarity and understanding on what the scriptures teach. Uh, there mm-hmm. does seem to me to be a differentiation between the authority of the Nicene Creed and the authority of uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew. Do Catholics understand that differently? Uh, well, so in terms of the Nicene Creed itself, we would say it's all true. It's all guaranteed to be true. I mean, God really is the creator of all things visible and invisible. His Son is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does proceed from the Father. And so all that's absolutely true. And it's guaranteed to be true, we would say, by the Holy Spirit's guidance of the Church. So we would say the Nicene Creed is without error, or it's inerrant, or it's infallible, but that doesn't mean that it's equal to a book of Scripture. It is not Scripture. Scripture has something that church creeds and councils, even though they're divinely guided, don't have. Scripture is divinely inspired. Working through the human author, the Holy Spirit chose what the human author of a given passage of Scripture would assert. So this is God, even though there is a human author, God is the ultimate author of Scripture. And traditions and church creeds and papal encyclicals, none of those are divinely inspired. Scripture, like Matthew, is. And so Scripture has a unique place in the life and faith of the Church that is higher than any other. 
and and so if recognizing that differentiation is is it a different if is it a differentiation with a, a legitimate difference? I mean, to say that that the Nicene Creed or that papal encyclicals, when when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he is speaking uh, infallibly. Uh, is there some functional difference between that and what I read in the Gospel of Matthew? Yeah, um, because just because someone is guaranteed to be right doesn't mean they're phrasing themselves in the best way or at the best time, or that they're saying everything that God would want said on this occasion. All, all infallibility is is a protection against saying something wrong. But, you know, I can have, I can, even other people can do things that are inerrant. I mean, if I am taking a math class and I score 100% on my math test, well, I just produced an inerrant math test. There are no errors in it. But that doesn't mean it communicates the fullness of what God wants communicated. I just mean that I didn't make any mistakes. And because God is the author of Scripture, the ultimate author, it means that Scripture does communicate not just stuff that's true, but what God wants us to know about him and his son. And so uh, there is a functional difference in that a, it, when a pope infallibly defines something, which doesn't happen actually very often, uh, there's only about about 10 infallible papal documents down in the course of church history. So it's, it's pretty rare. Um, but all it guarantees is the Pope is not wrong in what he says. It doesn't mean that he's phrasing himself in the best way, or that he's communicating everything that needs to be communicated, or that he's communicating at the right time. All it means is it's not wrong. So would the idea, and, and you know this would be a stumbling block for us Protestants, would the idea that uh, that Mary serves alongside Jesus as co-redemptrix. Would that be considered infallible church teaching? Um, that title has not been infallibly proclaimed. Uh, properly understood, though, I don't think there's, I don't think we would really substantially disagree because what the title means. And like I said, it's not one that has, the Church has infallibly taught. It's just one that a lot of theologians have used. But uh, what it means is that Mary works with the Redeemer. That's where the co comes from. It's from the Latin word cum, which means with. And so it means that Mary works with Jesus or cooperates with Jesus as the Redeemer. And she obviously did that because she agreed to be his mom. She said, be it done unto me according to thy word. And so that she worked with God in bringing Jesus into the world. She gave her consent. And in a similar way, we today as Christians work with the Redeemer. That's something St. Paul talks about, how we need to be ambassadors for Christ. We need to cooperate in bringing the message of redemption to people in the world. And so there's a sense in which all of us are co-redeemers, not in the sense that we died on the cross for the sins of mankind. We didn't. That's what Jesus did, and that's what only he could do. But we work with him in bringing his message to others. And so when you understand this correctly, I don't actually think we're in substantive disagreement here. So are you saying that my, my role as co-redeemer and Mary's role as co-redeemer are essentially equivalent? Are you Jesus's mom? <laughs> well, no, but well, then but, they're not uh, exactly equivalent, but they are. The, <laughs> it is the same principle at work. Okay, so it it, it was her her role in in 
in saying yes, is that her her sole contribution to redemptive history? Oh, no. She also continued to be Jesus's mom and raise him from an infant, and she uh, served. She she was his mother all the way down through his life and stood there right at the end, at right the in front of the cross. Right. And like other saints in heaven, uh, she prays for us just like other people in heaven do, as we see in the book of Revelation. So she continues to work with the Redeemer just like all the saints in heaven do. But she, as Jesus's mother, has a unique role that's not shared by others. I, the, the reason I think conversations like this can be so helpful and so profitable for all of us, Jimmy, is because I, I think on both sides of the debate and argument, we've had a, a tendency to misstate or mischaracterize each other's viewpoints. And yeah. to get to clarity is, is uh, I, I think we want to be intellectually honest with one another and, and listen to one another and make sure that we're not just uh, uh, just pitching stones indiscriminately at each other. Yeah, and from a Catholic point of view, even though there are differences, you know, and unfortunately Catholics and Protestants are not in full communion with each other, we are brothers in Christ from a Catholic point of view, uh, and we there's more that unites us than that separates us. And so we need to have that Christian charity and brotherly love for each other and to treat each other with respect and love and to clear away misunderstandings. So in, in, in that regard, then, from a Catholic point of view, as you said, we are brothers in Christ, but did not Trent anathematize people like me? And I, I know what the, what the second— uh, the Actually, second bat- no. <laughs> okay, so clear that up for me. Okay, so people uh, today commonly don't understand what the word anathema means. An anathema was a special kind of excommunication— and it was done with a special ceremony. So if someone was going to be anathematized for some ecclesiastical crime, they would be brought down to the cathedral, and the bishop would warn them that they need to stop whatever crime they're committing. And if they didn't listen, then they would be brought again down to the cathedral, and the bishop would do this special excommunication ceremony, where, among other things, he talks about, like, I've warned this guy three times, and he still won't repent. And then he would uh, excommunicate the guy, and he would. Uh, the ceremony would end with the closing of a book, the ringing of a bell, and the snuffing out of candles, signifying this sentence has been imposed. This guy is excommunicated in this special, profound, solemn way. Just like we see St. Paul talking about excommunicating or shunning the sinning brother who's still trying to remain a Christian in 1 Corinthians. Um, well, then... This was always meant to be a medicinal penalty, to get someone to wake up and repent of whatever it was they were doing that was wrong. And so there's a parallel ceremony for lifting the anathema. And so you bring the guy back down, and he's restored to fellowship with the, with the Christian Church, and everything's fine because he's repented now. So what Trent did, knowing that this is how the term was used in the 1500s, it's referring to this special ceremony of excommunication, Trent was saying, if anyone does X, whatever the problem may be, let's say they're teaching some heresy, if anyone does X, let him be anathema, means if someone is teaching this heresy or whatever, let this process happen. Let the bishop bring him down and do the special excommunication ceremony, and he'll, he'll be excluded from communion until he repents. But obviously, this is a judicial procedure. The bishop has to take action 
for this to happen. It doesn't happen automatically. And so it's not like just because someone blurts out a heresy somewhere that magically causes the bishop like a robot to go down <laughs> to the cathedral and initiate proceedings. Um, I got I got to like, jump in here because we're working up against a hard deadline. This, this so much we could talk about here, and and Jimmy, I'm grateful for the time that uh, you've spent with us. Hope folks will tune in for the debate next week. Uh, thank you for this. Thanks for joining us this afternoon, and uh, hope our listeners will be back with us again tomorrow at three o'clock for another edition of Southern California Live. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.